0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Dirty Work and the People Who Do It, the low income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. What does that have to do with the rest of us? AL Press will explain. His book, Dirty Work, is out now in paperback. But first, The Mar-a-Lago raid by the FBI put Donald Trump back at the center of American politics. Is that good for Democrats? John Nichols will comment in a minute. The Trump threat and the Mar-a-Lago raid. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's National Affairs Correspondent for the nation. John, welcome back.
1: It is an honor to be with you, my friend.
0: The pundits are telling us that Trump is likely to announce before the midterms that he's entering the presidential race for 2024 and that that has been made more likely by the fbi raid on mar-a-lago two weeks ago some of our friends are saying that would be great for democrats because nothing would do more to increase democratic turnout than to have trump back at the center of american politics what do you think about hoping trump declares he's a candidate and that he does it soon well Honestly, I, I would hope that Trump would be
1: indicted and, and face criminal charges soon. And so, uh, I'm I'm not casual about Donald Trump. You know what I mean? I I actually think the guy is incredibly dangerous and uh, is really a, a existential threat to American democracy. So I'm not going to say, "Oh wow," you know. I hope he I hope for a tactical positioning he runs. However, uh, if we're honest with ourselves. If Donald Trump announces before the 2022 election, that is almost certainly good for the Democrats. Uh, And and also, I will tell you that uh, I think that's a that's an up for grabs issue because Trump's legal problems have exploded to such an extent lately that um, a decision on whether to run or not is going to have to be run through a whole host of legal questions as well. And not just his ego. And so I I think it's a complex issue. But even if he doesn't run, my bet is that he will be the central issue of of the 2022 campaign.
0: Well, the reason uh, that Trump might announce soon, we are told, is not only that this has turned out to be a fantastic fundraising event for his base, but Probably more important, his legal strategists think it would be harder for Merrick Garland to indict and prosecute a presidential candidate, especially for violating the Espionage Act. The theme of the campaign then would be he's fighting a political establishment that's out to uh, to get him and that the FBI has been politicized and never before has anything this horrible happened to America. The Espionage Act is a special problem for us on the left. We've always hated the Espionage Act. Remind okay. us about the Espionage Act. Look, like, the Espionage Act
1: is is a pretty terrible law, um, and it has been used very broadly. Uh, and, and frankly, I think Merrick Garland's actually a very cautious uh, practitioner of Espionage Act arts. Um, but if you go back to the aftermath of World War I, The Espionage Act was used as the most Trumpian uh, vicious tool for attacking immigrants and refugees. There were people who were actually forced to leave the country because of their political views. They had been accepted into the United States. They were active and engaged. They had families. They had jobs. They had lives. Uh, The Espionage Act was used as a tool to destroy lives. It was really the, the primary tool of the first Red Scare in the aftermath of World War One, uh, It was used to shut down uh, publications run by Emma Goldman, uh, to shut down socialist newspapers, to prevent a socialist who was elected to Congress from taking his seat. I mean, we went through a, a, an incredibly uh, dark and, and very destructive period in the immediate aftermath of World War One, and the Espionage Act was central to that. So Progressives have always been conscious of it as as a tool that's been abused. Um, In the case of Donald Trump, I I think, bizarrely enough, Garland may have found one of the rare cases where (laughs) you can legitimately say you got a real problem here. Uh, And so I'm not this isn't a criticism of Garland, per se, but it is a a warning that that, you know, don't pop champagne corks when you hear the word uh, espionage act.
0: Well, this mar lago raid came at a time when uh, a majority of Republicans seemed to be moving away from Trump as their preferred candidate, and when the alternative candidates seemed to be on the rise. But all that has, sort of the brakes have been put on all of that. Uh, almost all Republicans are now supporting Trump against the FBI in one way or another. Josh Hawley, one of our favorites, of course, uh, called this an unprecedented assault on the rule of law and called for the removal of Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Chris Ray. Who appointed Chris Ray to be director of the FBI? That would be Donald John Trump. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Ted Cruz called the FBI raid an action worthy of, quote, tin-pot dictators, phrase we don't hear that often. Marjorie Taylor Greene called for defunding the FBI. I thought the funding the police was was something that Black Lives Matter favored and something the Republicans were using against the Democrats. Look, uh, the Republican response to the raid on Mar-a-Lago
1: was to go full mega. And you're right. Prior to that raid, there was this kind of opening up of space within the Republican Party, not a big space, but particularly after the Georgia primaries where Trump's candidates lost, there was sort of a sense that, well, maybe there's, you know, maybe there there is a... A future for the Republican Party that is extremely right wing, but that is not full MAGA. What the Mar-a-Lago raid did was create a, a circumstance where the base of the Republican Party, the grassroots of the Republican Party, was angry and kind of whipped into a bigger anger by Fox and by right wing talk radio, which saw this as a wonderful tool, right? You know, this is just a great tool to to up ratings in the summer doldrums, quite frankly. I mean, we should understand that media component of it. And so you saw Republicans like Kevin McCarthy, everybody jumping on board. And, and what you quoted were the moderate statements from Hawley and, and Cruz and people like that. You go look at Kerry Lake down in, in Arizona or some of these candidates in Florida. They're literally saying that they want to bar the FBI from operating in their states if they're not cooperating with state officials in wow. state policing agencies. So this wow. is talking about literally, you know, in the schoolhouse door, barring the federal government people uh, from coming in. It's It really, it opened something up within the Republican Party. Now, that is very beneficial to Trump. At this point, uh, even before the Mar-a-Lago raid, it was pretty clear that Trump had, had basically gained a, a full control of the party. You know, he was by and large, his primary candidates are winning. By and large, uh, he was the dominant figure. But it wasn't, you know, everything wasn't locked up. I think the Mar-a-Lago raid pretty much locked things up. And the fact of the matter is now, um, the only way, in my opinion, that Trump doesn't run in 2024 is is if he is, in fact, indicted and under, you know,
0: facing prosecution. And
1: even then, I suspect he would run.
0: There is one exception to the potential Republican presidential candidates on this score. Mike Pence, of course, has called on Republicans to stop attacking the FBI and to, you know, stand with law enforcement. And of course, Liz Cheney uh, also says she found there's no political motivation behind the Mar-a-Lago raid. She said, I was ashamed to hear Republicans attack the FBI agents who executed the search warrant. This is a really dangerous moment. But of course, once Trump declares, then he will pressure all the other Republican candidates to declare their support for him and declare that if they get elected in 2024, they will end the prosecution of Trump, they will pardon everyone involved, and they will pursue the people in the Biden administration uh, who who did this. He is going to make this the center of his campaign. And that does sort of take the focus away from uh, the big lie, which previously was what Liz Cheney had been focusing on as the issue for the Republican Party. Yeah, the rest assured, the big lie is still out there.
1: <laughs> you know, don't don't worry, John. Okay. It hasn't been buried quite yet. Uh, <clears throat> but no, here's the bottom line. Let's let's assume that Mike Pence isn't going to be the Republican nominee for vice president in 2024. Um, so that gives Trump this incredible opportunity. He announces. And then he opens up the competition for vice president that then takes just about everybody out of the competition (laughs) because they know that if they actually challenge him in the primaries, well, he's probably not going to, not going to choose him and he's probably going to win those primaries. So you end up in a situation where he's sort of in a perfect position to marginalize the vast majority of his opponents right up to, and I think including Ron DeSantis out of Florida. And, and so then his only opposition will be the people who are actually clearly in opposition to him. And and I will tell you that uh, a Mike Pence as a candidate for president or uh, Liz Cheney as a candidate for president would would long for the uh, the incredibly strong, powerful showings that Liz Cheney got in Wyoming a week or so ago. Hmm. Right. Uh, mm. It's going to go nowhere uh, very fast. And and we in the media would love covering that challenge to Trump. I mean, I've, I'd love to go up to New Hampshire and, you know, write about the courageous battle, you know, against Donald Trump. Uh, but I did that in 2020 when I was interviewing Bill Weld. And uh, <laughs> how'd, that, how'd that work out? <laughs> I just, you know, yeah, yeah, well, I'll tell you how it worked out. It's relevant to our discussion because I wrote about Bill Weld in uh, 2020 as a, you know, an honorable challenger to Donald Trump in the primaries. And Bill Weld actually started to get a little bit of traction. He got a decent vote in Iowa, got a delegate out of Iowa, which was wild. He got a credible vote in New Hampshire. He was getting, you know, kind of winks and nod uh, type sympathy from the governors of Vermont and uh, Massachusetts. He was sort of looking like, wow, maybe Bill Weld could get, you know, 10 percent of the delegates of the convention, raise some platform, do something. It would still. But and then, you know, what the Republican establishment did. They started canceling primaries. Wow. Uh-huh. Oh, they canceled like all across the country, they barred entry to primaries they couldn't cancel. And in state after state after state where they could, they just said, oh, we're going to a convention system, a state convention system to endorse Trump. And so the end result is that Trump uh, shut down even a, a very, very minor challenge to him in 2020. And my bet is with his greater control over the Republican Party now, Um, there's a very real chance that that in 2024, Trump gets state parties to literally cancel or alter their primaries in ways that that completely benefit him. So I don't think that we're going to be talking about uh, Mike Pence as the Republican nominee for vice president or president. And, you know, I hate to break it to Liz Cheney, but there's a decent chance Republicans aren't going to nominate her either.
0: I'd like to talk about Wisconsin politics, that Democrats, as you have told us, united and uh, support all supported Mandela Barnes as the Senate candidate to challenge the horrible Ron Johnson. How's Mandela Barnes doing? Pretty good, John Weiner. We had a poll
1: come out last week in Wisconsin, and it's the, the kind of gold standard poll. It's the Marquette University Law School poll that that pretty much everybody in Wisconsin accepts as a good poll. Doesn't mean it always gets everything right, but it's a solid poll. And amazingly enough, after the the Republican and Democratic primaries, it put Mandela Barnes up seven points over Ron Johnson. Outside the margin of error uh, with a majority. Mandela Barnes at 51 percent and leading overwhelmingly among Democrats, doing exceptionally well for a, a race like this among independents. Uh, and so it's looking like Mandela Barnes is a very credible challenger to Ron Johnson. I still think the race is going to get ugly. It's going to be mean. There's going to be immense amounts of money. Uh, even Republicans who know that Ron Johnson is in complete embarrassment are still going to pump money into him because he's going to be critical to holding to them having any chance of gaining control of the Senate, right? And so it's, it's such an important battle. But Mandela Barnes is looking very strong. And I'll give you one tidbit that I think you'll appreciate. Um, it, the, you know, there's a very crowded Democratic primary and De- Mandela Barnes's opponents spent a better part of twenty five million dollars trying to beat him. Uh, they were unsuccessful and many of them dropped out, but he still had several active opponents when uh, primary day came on August 9th and he won about 80 percent of the vote. So just overwhelmingly swept rural areas, actually did better in some rural areas than in some urban areas. So very, very good finish for him. But over on the Republican side, nobody was paying attention to the Republican primary. Who cared? Right. Ron Johnson, he's the guy. But he did have an unknown opponent who did so small a campaign that this guy didn't file a campaign finance report, didn't have ads on TV, didn't have radio ads, wasn't interviewed by the media, was often not even mentioned. Well, the unknown candidate against uh, Ron Johnson got 110,000 votes, over 16% of the vote. Wow. So uh, there are some Republicans who, who may not be all that impressed with uh, Ron Johnson. And if Mandela Barnes runs his campaign right, which is to uh, you know, maximize progressive turnout, Mandela Barnes is a progressive, to reach out in the ways that he always has to rural areas and to give those democracy-supporting Republicans a reason to cross over at least this once and vote to get rid of Ron Johnson. I think his chances are looking
0: remarkably good. And uh, how about uh, the incumbent Democratic governor, Tony Evers? That poll showed him ahead, but not by as much as Mandela Barnes is ahead.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's a closer result, but I think that's reasonably easy to explain. And, and certainly it's a part of why Mandela Barnes came out so well in the poll. Mandela Barnes had just won a primary, right? And had all the, the drama of a primary, even though at the end it had gone very much in his favor. He had ads up on TV, a lot of profile. Um, the guy who's running against Tony Evers, a guy named Tim Michaels, had just won his primary. And had had a massive $12 million TV ad campaign and stuff. So my sense is that, you know, you get this primary bump. And uh, obviously it helped Barnes. It also helped the Republican running against Evers to some extent. But still, Evers maintained his lead. And um, it was a quirky poll in that regard, too, because a lot of people, about 7%, said they were supporting an a independent candidate who nobody's heard of. And so my mm-hmm. sense is that there are some people parking that that sort of was enough. Another way of saying undecided. Um, Bottom line is that I think that Tony Evers uh, probably, again, I won't say this absolutely, but probably won the governor's race on the day that the Dobbs decision came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, because Wisconsin is an overwhelmingly pro-choice state. In fact, even among Republicans, pro-choice position gets very, very good numbers. And uh, I think that that Tony Evers is going to run on that. He's going to run very strong on that, and uh, my sense is that like a lot of Democrats in battleground states, that may well be the issue that puts him across the the line, maybe even with a decent margin in November.
0: John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. This is great. Thank you, John.
1: It's an honor to be with you.
0: Now it's time to talk about dirty work and the people who do it, the low-income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. For that, we turn to Al Press. He's an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Nation. He's also a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Type Media Center. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. We reached him today in New York City. AL Press, welcome back.
2: Thank you so much, John. Great to
0: be here. Well, the pandemic brought us to appreciate and to honor and cheer for essential workers, especially hospital staff, but also grocery store clerks, garbage collectors, the delivery men who bring us the stuff we've needed over the past year and a half. But you're concerned with an even more hidden class of workers who do jobs that you call morally troubling, people we'd rather not think about. And people who we certainly do not cheer for—who are they?
2: You're very right that that the term "essential jobs" almost deserves air quotes in my subtitle because um, I'm not actually saying that were this the just society that many of your listeners would would like to have, these jobs would be around. But they are around, and I'm talking about the people who run America's prison system, the largest prison system in the world, um, as as you're aware. I'm talking about people who carry out targeted assassinations in the drone program or people who man the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses. All of those jobs are essential to the American way of life or the prevailing social order. They are not essential in some immutable way that suggests, you know, this is how we would want the world to be. But I do contend in the book that just as we discovered during the pandemic, this sort of convenient arrangement where you had people who, in, from more privileged professions, white collar uh, professions, bankers, software engineers, who had the, the, the privilege to shelter in place as other people delivered their groceries to them, as other people got the, the goods out of the warehouses for them and, and took great risks. So we have, a as well, a moral division of labor. And it is not an equal division. It is a division whereby people with fewer choices and opportunities are generally delegated, what I refer to as these these sullying, degrading jobs. And we can talk more about the specific cases I look
0: look into. You start uh, your new book, Dirty Work, with a tough case, Prison Guards. Ever since over-incarceration became an issue, we've blamed uh, the prison guards as a key force along with the police, pushing for more prisons, more prisoners, longer sentences, because the lobbying by their unions has been so effective. We record our show in California, which the state reached a kind of tipping point a couple of years ago when taxpayers started spending more money on prisons than on schools, we consider prison guards and their unions to be a really malevolent force in our state, but you suggest another way of looking at prison guards. Yeah, well, I wouldn't
2: deny any of what you just said. It's it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And I think one other, a, a different way to um, to think about prison guards is as agents of a society that has built this prison system, not only to warehouse two million, more than two million of our fellow citizens in often extremely brutal and violent conditions, but also to effectively run our mental health system. Because jails and prisons in the United States, in in I think every state at this point, um, the largest mental health institution is not a public hospital. It is not a community health center. It is a jail or a prison. And actually, I begin the book by by looking at the mental health aides who work at a particularly violent prison in Florida, where the incarcerated people, uh, mentally ill people, are being horrifically abused. And this puts those mental health aides in a terrible dilemma, in a position whereby if they say something, if they report what's happening, they're liable to get in trouble and to uh, you know have the guards retaliate against them. And they rely on these guards for their own security to open doors for them and to be there in the wreck yard. So if, if they challenge the guards, they're, they're risking something. If they don't challenge them, they're going along with human rights abuses. But in the next section, I do indeed complicate the story by looking at the guards themselves.
0: Let's focus here, as you do at the beginning of your book, on the story of the death of one mentally ill man in this Florida prison named Darren Rainey. We know what happened to him only because of heroic action by a couple of whistleblowers on the prison staff who reported on the sadistic behavior of most of the other guards. And the story is truly horrifying, almost unbearable to read about. But you say these Sadistic guards are not to blame for the system, the inhumane system that they are part of. Right. So, and let me just correct one tiny thing that's very
2: important, actually. None of the staff actually reported what happened to Rainey. It was another prisoner, a guy named Harold Hempstead, who reported it, who blew the whistle. And that tells you something about how the system, you know, constrains all of the people in it, including the very well intentioned. Mental health aides. I, I interviewed, but to, to turn to the guards, you know, I interviewed one guard in particular in depth. I, he shared his diaries with me. He 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 spoke to me uh, very frankly about um, the brutality that guards in Florida do meet out. And he called these fellow officers. He called them serial bullies. He said, you know, some of these guys just beat inmates, beat prisoners, uh, you know, in in a way that's just. A kind of cruelty he'd never witnessed before, and this guy was a military veteran, as a lot of uh, uh, corrections officers are. Um, so here you're thinking, okay, the way you just described them as this malevolent force is is exactly accurate. But he went on to say, you know, the people of Florida get what they pay for when when you talk about what goes on in their prison in the prisons. You know, why do these abuses happen? Well, you could you could attribute it to character flaws, but you could also look at the fact that Florida spends. Uh, It has the third largest prison system in the country. And at the time that I was writing and these abuses were occurring, it spent the second least on mental health services in the country. So what do you have? You have a jail and prison system that is overcrowded. It is often filled with people with severe mental health problems who are cycling through. And Bill Curtis, the guard I interviewed, like a lot of the guards, get no training to deal with this particular population. And indeed, if you asked a psychiatrist or asked a psychologist, you know, where would you least want to take a person in the throes of a mental health crisis? They would likely say, you know, a jail or a prison. And yet that's what happens. And so surprise, surprise, you combine a lack of rehabilitative services, a lack of health services, overcrowded conditions. And by the way, a pared down staff, thanks to then Governor Rick Scott, of course, today is Senator Scott, um, who cut the prison budget significantly. And as Curtis said to me, you know, when you're an officer in that condi- in that in those situations, you learn there's only one way to control the place, and that way is through brute force. And this is sort of the message that society sends, but it's all done and hidden. It's all it's all sort of veiled from from scrutiny, not seen. And then when a scandal like the Rainey case erupts. People say, oh, look at those sadistic guards. Well, I'm saying in the book, don't look just at those guards. Look at the society, the social conditions that gave rise to this system and the shared responsibility that all of us have.
0: But let's be clear, the primary victims of this kind of dirty work, in your view, are not the people who do it. The primary victims are the people they're brutalizing. But you are concerned about what you call the Moral and Emotional Wounds That Dirty Workers Sustain, Hidden Injuries, they've been called in a famous uh, book from, from their work. Uh, tell us a little more about that.
2: You know, a major theme of my book is, is the concept of moral injury. The idea that um, if you are doing a job that requires you to mete out violence or that requires you to um, survey villagers through uh, drones that at any moment could leave innocent civilians dead. Um, And you see that, but the society that put you there doesn't, that those jobs carry a psychic toll that is very hard, I think almost impossible to capture in statistics, but that is very important in measuring a worker's sense of self-esteem, the degradation they experience, the lack of dignity. You know, Biden said when he accepted the Democratic nomination, he was telling a story about his father and he said, you know, uh, his father told him, uh, you know, Joey, a, a job isn't just uh, a paycheck. It's also a source of dignity. It's about a person's place in the community. Those are the themes I'm looking at and asking, you know, if you're... The, the, the prison guards I spoke to, uh, by and large, were people who wanted to do something else. They took a, what, what is called a job of last resort, and they took it maybe because it had benefit. In Florida, the pay is very low, but it does have benefits. So as one of the one of the guards told me, you know, it was either a little higher salary and no benefits, or this job with benefits, but with all of the, and I would say moral costs that go along with it. And, and you're very right that I by no means am saying they're the primary victims, just as in, in the section of the book on drones, I make it clear that the primary victims of an air and drone strike are innocent civilians, are, are, are people like those killed in the strike as the US was leaving Afghanistan. But there is a second secondary set of victims, I think, that that in a way are both perpetrators and victims, and and that is these dirty workers.
0: And there's a special case in the prisons, which is prison guards who are people of color. Many of the prisoners, of course, are people of color, and there are also guards who are people of color. And a lot of people's first response would be, well, how can they brutalize their own people? This is another question you've looked into.
2: I interview a black officer, a black uh, security guard, who on one hand told me about the racism of his fellow officers and about being stopped on the way to work uh, and pulled over repeatedly. And even when he had his badge ready to show the cop, you know, hey, I'm 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 an officer, too. It didn't matter. He was just viewed as as uh, a black man who was a suspect in, in the officer's eyes. So all of that is true. And yet at the same time, you know, it's it's quite striking during the era of mass incarceration, states like Florida and in, and in other parts of the country, the proportion of the prison workforce, um, the correctional workforce that is black and or Latino um, increased significantly as did, by the way, the, the percentage of the of the workforce that is female. And in the particular prison I'm looking at, Dade, a, a lot of the workforce, the, the frontline guards, were female Black officers who were working and, and, and often coming from the same neighborhoods that some of the incarcerated people came from, very depressed, very um, few opportunities for jobs. And, you know, again, this doesn't in any way take away from the, you know, it doesn't excuse the fact that the violence happens and, and, and folks should be held accountable, but it suggests that um, the powerful and the privileged have found a very convenient way to delegate this work to people lower on the social ladder than themselves, and not only to delegate the work, but but in a way to, to keep both the workers and the work itself invisible.
0: And there's another set of hard to see uh, workers that i'm very interested in that you write about the slaughterhouse workers who are some of the most degraded oppressed and hard to find uh, workers in our society the slaughterhouses have been moved out to remote uh, rural areas specifically to get them away from the big cities where they were uh, more visible i remember that there was a time when this was a more honorable job from the 40s to the 60s slaughterhouse workers had a strong Progressive Union the United Packing House Workers which fought for and won a national contract which gave them not only high wages and safe working conditions but this was also a union that was famous for its fight for racial integration of their workplace and social justice in the nation they they got blacks appointed shop stewards they supported the march on washington Then in the early seventies, this union was broken. The union workers were fired. The line was speeded up. The slaughterhouses were moved to remote areas, and undocumented immigrants were brought in and exploited mercilessly. But this history suggests it wasn't always like that, and and that in turn suggests it doesn't have to be.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. You've done a great job of sketching the history there. that, That that sort of starts with you know from Upton Sinclair. I trace it myself to. You know, some of the brutalities he wrote about. And very interestingly, if you go back and read The Jungle, you'll see all kinds of passages where he's talking about not just the injuries that the workers suffer, but the feeling of degradation, the dirtiness. You know, they, he, he, there's a passage in the book where he talks about you can't even find a place to wash your hands. You know, and that's not just about getting it's, – it's about this sense of being stigmatized, right? You just – you're in there killing – you're with the blood and the, and the gore of this. But as you say, the, 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 there was a very strong union movement that didn't necessarily make the job any less bloody, but certainly did make it less dangerous, certainly did make it less degrading, uh, certainly made it better paying. That fell apart in the 70s through a very concerted corporate strategy – led by a company then called IBP. And they started importing strike breakers from Mexico, basically, in, in Nebraska and in other places. And that low-wage strategy took over the industry and is, is especially apparent in the, the sector I look at, which is poultry
0: slaughterhouses. So I know your purpose in this book is not to propose new legislation that will uh, solve this problem, but it does raise the question, especially with prison guards, How much of this is necessary? Of course, there's been a movement led by Angela Davis to abolish prisons, so that no one is subject to this kind of brutality again. The question really is how much of this, the dirty work you write about, really is necessary? And if so, does it have to be that dirty?
2: I hope there's a conversation on, on all, about all the forms of work I write about can be opened up. You know, I also write about uh, dirty tech and, and you know, the, the gadgets that we all use ha- has a form of dirty work that that has just been um, outsourced and, and taken offshore, namely the mining that goes on for cobalt in the Congo uh, with child labor and brutal conditions and all kinds of middlemen, uh, these companies that sell from one to another, and that eventually makes its way to Apple and Microsoft and all the companies that we all patronize and patronize. And and I I should say, you know, that's the point of the book. I'm trying to to connect this dirty work to our lives to show how, in fact, we rely on it, whether we see it or not. And so then that begs a question, well, what can you do about it? And my conclusion is, and I suggest very strongly, you can't do that much about it as an individual consumer. I mean, yeah, you could you could stop eating meat. You could decide not to buy these gadgets, but someone else will keep buying them. And, you know, there are, there are plenty of customers um, lining up. Uh, the fast food chains will continue to profit. So the only real solutions are political and I would say are collective. Just as, as the responsibility for dirty work is shared, so too any any way of altering this work has to be a sort of shared endeavor, a collective enterprise.
0: We together share the responsibility for the harm done by dirty workers and for the emotional injuries they suffer. And we together can change what we require of them. The book is Dirty Work. The author is A.L. Press. A.L., thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, John. A.L. Press's book is out now in paperback. We spoke with him in September, 2021.